0: Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan. This is episode 169, covering the week of May 13th through May 17th, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And, of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media buttons at the top of our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll get on our email list and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and a weekly email that includes a link to this podcast on Saturday or Sunday. You can also keep up with the Institute by downloading our free mobile application. Just go to wherever your mobile apps are purchased or where you get them free, whether it's Apple or Google, and look for Abbeville Institute. And, of course, you push that and you've got it. It's on your phone. So you've got uh, the Abbeville Institute on the go where it gives you a link to this uh, this podcast, all of our past podcasts, our lectures, a mobile uh access to the website so it's a great way to keep up with the institute free of charge you can also support the abbeville institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org at the top of the page you'll see a button or a tab that says support click on that it'll drop down a menu you have donor levels and you can donate monthly annually or a one-time donation we do exist on your generous contributions alone and they are tax deductible to the full extent of the law so consider a tax-deductible donation to the abbeville institute It'll help keep this podcast going, help keep the website going. Our conferences our all the things we do exist on your generous contribution. So uh, please consider doing that. You can also support the Institute by purchasing some Abbeville Institute apparel at the same button that says support. Click on the shop button and it'll take you out. You can buy our embroidered apparel, whether it's shirts, uh, you got hats, golf towels, all kinds of cool stuff. So go out there and get that great stuff at abbevilleinstitute.org. And don't forget, we have our conference coming up, our summer school, July. In July, let's see, it's July. I keep forgetting the date. It's July 21st through 26th, 2019. Seabrook Island, South Carolina. Topic, New South and Reconstruction. And uh, we only have a few slots left. We're looking for students, too. So we do have scholarships available. So if you'd like to, uh, to attend the summer school, If you're a student, an undergraduate, graduate student, or an advanced high school student, we do have scholarships. So uh, go ahead and go to the website, abbevilleinstitute.org. See that uh, uh, link in the middle of the page that says you're invited. Click on that. You've got all of Dr. Livingston's information. So go on out there and get that and uh, take part in the summer school. It's a grand time. It's not just a stuffy uh, set of lectures. It's at the beach. So you have, uh, there's fun events. There's always people playing music and doing fun things. So it's a great time. It's a real social environment as well. So going out there and and head on out to our summer school. I don't think you'll be disappointed. All right, well, let's talk about the material for the week. And the overall theme for this particular week is Southern conservatism. And um, this is something that is one of the vital aspects of the Southern tradition. We talk about we're exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. One of the major components of that, of course, is Southern conservatism. So what does that actually mean? And if you listen to the mainstream establishment historians or anyone else who thinks they know anything about the South, they'll tell you, well, of course, Southern conservatism is all about race. Um, One of the things that uh, David Hackett Fisher pointed out in his book, Albion Seed, if you've never read that, you need to read it. He said, look, all the things that happened in the South did not create Southern culture. Southern culture created those things. And what he meant by that was not that Southerners, of course, were any more racist than anyone else in America, because they weren't. But the, the plantation lifestyle, the agrarian lifestyle, and of course the search for labor, all of that was born out of the cavalier culture that migrated from England over to America. And so before they, they uh, had slavery here in America, of course, uh, you had this interest in bonded labor, whether it was serfdom, uh, you had indentured servants. There was some type of bonded labor structure uh, with these large landed estates. And so that just transferred over here to the United States, what became the United States, to so the Americas. And uh, I think it's important to understand that. And, of course, one of the things that, that historians have always tried to do was find uh, a conservative tradition in America. And so you have Lewis Hartz, and, and the first piece of the week, John Devaney gets into this very well. It's a wonderful piece. But he talks about Lewis Hart's and the Hart's thesis, that there was no conservative tradition in America. It didn't exist. America had always been a liberal, an ideologically liberal place. It never really had a conservative tradition. It was always reactionary. But even at its core, even the reactionary quote-unquote conservatives were at their core liberal, classically liberal. And then you had Eugene Genovese in his book, Slaveholders' Dilemma, echo this essentially, saying, look, Southerners were in this strange place where they were conservative, but yet they were also modern. And there was the dilemmas, the slaveholders' dilemma. They, they were modern because they loved things like liberty and and uh, and uh, the the uh, they thought they were progressive, so they were modern, but yet they were holding on to this conservatism. So, this is an interesting argument, and John Devaney, I think does a very nice job in taking this apart. And he says they they're flawed. The hearts and Genovese thesis is flawed because they don't they don't. And while Genovese had a great respect for Southern conservatives, and he wrote a wonderful book entitled "The Mind of the Master Class," which if you want to get into what uh, the into the Southern tradition, and um, the top-down structure of the South intellectually. You need to read that book. It's wonderful. Uh, it took him it was one of the last books he ever wrote. Uh, but it's um it's a wonderful look at at uh, at Southern society, but you know he said, Devaney said, look, the problem is that they they have two flawed assumptions, but most importantly, when when you look at it, <clears throat> Um, it was the fact that um, he said first was a tendency to ignore or downplay the successful transmission by the early settlers of British North America of their political, social, and cultural institutions and practices. This is exactly what uh, David Hackett Fisher wrote in Albion Seed. They brought over the old world to the new, but it was more importantly, it was, it was the way they viewed the world. It was the way they viewed the world. And one of the things that they were highly suspicious of is capitalism. Now not capitalism in the sense of a free market capitalism. They weren't they weren't opposed to that. They were opposed to state capitalism. because as John points out in this particular piece, he goes through in very very nice detail um, how capitalism and, and it, it certainly it's risk management is the important part of it. State capitalists are afraid of risk, and so they cozy up with the state to try to minimize the risk, whether it's through tariffs, whether it's through central banking or state policy, whatever it is. Publicly financed infrastructure, liability exceptions. Um, so the, the point is they're trying to minimize and manage risk, which is why they get in bed with the state. So he's saying that Southern conservatives weren't weren't against the market. I mean and they and they wanted to make money. I mean there's no doubt about it. And of course land became the basis of wealth in places like Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia. It was land. Now you still had this in the north too. I mean look, you still had large estates on the, along the Hudson River Valley. This is why certain parts of New York were sympathetic with the South. Um in New Jersey, you had, you had large estates. You still had areas of the north, in the mid-Atlantic states primarily, that you had these large landed estates. And they certainly had sympathy with Southerners because there was a common cause. It was land, and it was a way of looking at the world. But that was conservative. It was the way that they looked at the world and the way they viewed family, as he gets into in this. In fact, in Virginia, it was if you killed your father, it was not only murder, it was treason. It was considered treason, which is an old holdover from the old Roman legal structure. So, that's the conservative part of the South. It was family. Um, it was these old cultural customs, traditions that were brought over from the old to the new. And the embodiment of that, he says, is John Randolph of Roanoke, the, the personification of it. Um, was John Randolph of Roanoke. And he says, of course, course, uh, on the surface, Randolph seemed to embody the Southern conservative paradox, a socially conservative slaveholder who was also a great advocate for economic liberalism and limited government. But he says a closer view reveals the method in Randolph's madness. Um, And this is true. I mean, when you look at what Randolph was doing, it wasn't some type of paradox. He was simply carrying over the old, the old world into the new. And the old cultural customs and traditions long held into the new. And that made him conservative. And it wasn't a liberal conservative. I mean, because, again, estate, estates weren't necessarily anti-market. And one of the things that's interesting, if you look at uh, Charles Sidnor, who wrote a, a wonderful book, a little book, On uh, early Virginia. And we've actually published the conclusion on the website before. Uh, So American Revolutionaries in the Making. Um, He points out, it's uh, from the 18th to the 20th, I think think is the title on the website if you want to read it. He points out that Virginia was highly aristocratic. But in that aristocratic Virginia, you had the fullest expression of individual liberty. Whereas in South Carolina, which was much more democratic, you had more restriction on it. So what he's saying is the paradox, he's actually getting into this, that Southerners, because of their old aristocratic traits, because of the cavalier culture, were more interested in their own liberty, which then filtered down to the rest of the population, than those that had to protect against democracy. This is why Randolph was highly suspicious of expanding the suffrage, because he thought that would actually limit liberty, not expand it. And you look at what's happening in American society today. We've expanded the suffrage out. We're talking about expanding it more. Maybe go down to 16-year-olds. Why not 14? Why not 11? Why not just let everybody vote from the time they're born? We're talking about things like uh, automatic voter registration. And these are coming from the left primarily that they want to do this because they think more voters means more power for them. And you look at what's happening in the and the destruction of liberty in America over time. We have far less liberty today to do anything we want than we've had at really any point in American history. Um, Liberty is being restricted everywhere. And a lot of it's being done by a mob mentality. And Randolph would have said, I told you so. As you expand the suffrage, as you add more and more people to the voter registration rolls, you're going to create a climate where you get demagogues, number one, and number two, where the mob and what's viewed for the 50 plus 1 percent will override the minority. You have less and less liberty because of democracy. This is one of the important points to understand about Southern conservatism. They were highly critical of democracy because they viewed it as a path to less liberty. It wasn't better to be democratic. And the Greeks, of course, knew this. I mean, everyone knew this. It's just that Americans don't know this because they don't ever read anything, and they don't really understand uh, political philosophy. They don't understand enough history to get it. They think, well, everybody should just vote because I exist. Viva yo, right? Um, so this is this is the real problem. This is this is the heart of Southern conservatism. It's not. It's it's anti-democratic. No matter who you are, I mean. Uh, so, they, they wanted landholder restrictions, for example, on people being able to vote. They wanted property restrictions, in other words. They wanted to have only certain individuals who had the highest stake in society. Now, you could say, well, how can you say that? Everybody's got a high stake in society. Well, some have more than others because of the amount of, of taxes that they have to pay or the, or the amount of burden their place is placed on them to support the entire structure of the government or of American society or of any society. Some have a greater stake than others. And, of course, as these Southerners, and and Fisher called this hegemonic liberty, as these Southerners, as these Virginians, more importantly, wanted to ensure their own liberty, then they ensured that everybody else had it, too. That, of course, was a freeholder, a citizen. I mean, we can get into where they, they decide citizens and all that kind of stuff. But citizens had the same level of liberty that they had, even if they couldn't vote, even if they couldn't participate. They ensured that there was a certain structure that, that uh, promoted this. And of course, once you had land, you could get into the club, right? I mean, it, was, it wasn't a it wasn't a static, rigid I mean, uh, s- a structure. Uh, you know, this is where Jefferson talked about his natural aristocracy. Um, they didn't want an artificial aristocracy, but a natural aristocracy. And of course, once you got enough land, you're in that, right? You, obviously. Um, so the last paragraph really gets into what what he talks about here with it, which is the Jeffersonian republicanism of the old South, and that's the conservative part of it. the republicanism, the Roman republicanism, which um in some ways is older, you know than than the British model, right? So uh, this is where Mel Bradford, who we talked about last week, uh, uh, um, had a wonderful essay on that. Um, and um it was um. Uh, an essay on republicanism, and I can't remember the exact title. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, I'd have to look it up again. Uh, but it's a, teaching, uh, a re- teaching for republicans or something along those lines uh, where it's getting into this idea of the continuity between old, the old Roman republic and southern conservatism. So we have to understand that. that that's the continuity between the old and America. And it's not just, as Liberal Heart suggests, a a classically liberal place. I mean, there is these old traits that came over from the old world. Now, along those lines, we have Walt Garlington's piece on Wednesday, uh, the Procrustean Constitution, where he talks about how uh, this U.S. Constitution, the original Constitution, had this federal structure, and he points out... um, That, you know, why must Bangor, Maine live exactly like Pawnee, Oklahoma, or Phoenix, Arizona, or Eau Claire, Wisconsin? He says, because we no longer have cohesive communities in the states with their own common history and identity. What he's talking about here again is culture. He's talking about culture. Um, And he's talking about how culture was the basis of these political communities that we know as states. And we've lost that. So, we've lost our own laws and customs in the States because we've really lost our culture. And um, that's what Southerners were trying to maintain. They didn't want a nationalism because they didn't want to be ruled by New England. They didn't want a situation where some alien people could tell them what to do because they had their own culture, their own traditions, their own customs, and they were, a- they were at odds with New England. Um, he says the written constitution itself has proved to be too perfect a vehicle for the propagation of positive law. So the written constitution has actually caused a problem. But only if you had... A national system. See the 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 enemy in all of this is nationalism. It always has been nationalism. And and John was actually talking about this. You know, with with Hamilton, <clears throat> Hamiltonian nationalism is the enemy of the original Constitution. It's also the enemy of conservatism. Now I know that conservatives say, "How can you say that Hamilton's a conservative? He was uh, suspicious of all these things that we're suspicious of too." This is true. But by saying we're going to have nationalism, you're actually you're creating a situation where you're going to destroy that. Uh, Garlington continues, one other thing it seems necessary to suggest here at the end, which is at least as old as Thomas Jefferson. Let each cultural region making up the current union become its own confederation. There is no reason for them to go on antagonizing each other by staying under one roof, trying to force their folkways upon each other, the others through the power structures of Washington City. There are sufficient ethnic, religious, and other kinds of differentiation between them to justify this. Uh, Viking East Anglican, New England, Mormon mountain states, Scandinavian German Great Plains, Spanish Southwest and so on and poor Hawaii can we finally give her back to the descendants of Queen Lilu Kalani with our deepest apologies for Washington's hostile takeover in the 1890s? So he's saying there's cultural and this is the agrarians we have why don't we have regional governments? Why don't we have uh, why don't we have the, why don't we just understand that we have differences and then we don't try to force our differences on each other. I That would be, that would be the, the gentlemanly thing to do, right? Why don't we just understand we have those things? But that's not what nationalism will do. Um, and so he's saying culture is the core of this. He says politics will always be a central part of Southern culture or any culture, but politics must not grow to such a magnitude of importance as to swallow up all other areas of culture. Constitutional values in and of themselves, like the kind Hannity and Levin are constantly rhapsodizing about, are not a culture, not a healthy one at any rate. He would say the Christian virtues, shape notes singing, harp and fiddle, Virginia reel, giant live oaks, blackberries from the cane, a white egret flying over a dark, slow-moving bayou, the front porch, county squires, the wise gray-headed black man of the neighborhood, Greek tragedies, Roman pastorals, Eudora uh, Welty stories, this is culture. More particularly, it's all part of Southern culture. So, he's saying, look, we have to maintain that. This is what we try to do at the Institute, too, is try to maintain this culture. But it gets into this idea of what made Southern conservatism. Well, this is it. On Tuesday, we ran a a piece, a biography. It's it's the best biography of George Washington. It's Douglas Southall Freeman's seven-volume series. But I love this piece for this week because Washington was the quintessential Southern conservative in a lot of ways. I mean, he's not John Randolph of Roanoke. He was more of a nationalist. But Washington defined the meaning of the American man, and he was a Virginia Cavalier to his core. This is why when Washington was the ideal American, which now it's Lincoln. Well, it was Lincoln. I don't know what it is anymore. But when Washington was the symbol of America, when Washington... Was the ideal. It was essentially the South. The South was the ideal man. The Southerner was the ideal man. The Southern conservative gentleman. That was the ideal man. So, this is the important thing to understand about Southern conservatives. I mean, George Washington was a conservative. There's no doubt about it. George Washington was. A quintessential Southern conservative, too much of a nationalist, perhaps listened to Alexander Hamilton too much. Did some things as president that we can we can criticize. But more than anything else, Washington as the man was not an was not a some type of converted Yankee. He was a Southerner. And if we understand that, if we understand what that meant, we can get back to that. I mean, we need more men like George Washington. And it wasn't that, I mean, what made George Washington special is the way that he lived his life in terms of his Republican values, this old Republicanism. Washington wasn't perfect, no man is. But universally, he was loved because of his culture. And this is why Washington was put on the Confederate seal. It's also why in, in New England they loved George Washington. I mean, I mean, see, the thing is, they loved George Washington because they had a different ideal of George Washington. And during his own lifetime, New Englanders were suspicious at times of George Washington because he was a Southerner. This is, this is well known. Uh, but women like Abigail Adams were, I mean, they were infatuated with George Washington because he was so different from what she saw around New England society. There was a time when Northern women loved to be a, loved to be married to and around Southern men, because they weren't Yankees. <laughs> and they weren't, they had a grace, a gentlemanly conduct. This is part of that culture. Certainly they were independent, they were rugged individualists, they were all these things. And George Washington was a great athlete, and he was... Uh, you know, Hunter, he did all these things that we would consider to be you know, Southern, but he, he had that gentlemanly code, and that's one thing that's really missing in the South. And we, we've gotten to a point now where that gentlemanly code has gone away. Uh, and it's a way you deal with people. Manners show people respect, and the way that Southerners dealt with people was different than the way Northerners did. Um, and it's hard now in modern society because no one really has any manners anymore, so it's hard to maintain those manners. Uh, But certainly, George Washington exemplified this Southern conservative gentleman that that John Randolph exemplified as well, but that John Devaney was talking about, that Walt Garlington was talking about. And when you look at the piece on Friday, A Republic of American Values by Paul Yarborough, he's getting into a video from PragerU that's entitled American Values. And he says that Prager, Dennis Prager, who's a congressman, said there's three things that uh, make America unique, and that is "E Pluribus Unum," liberty, and "In God We Trust." In other words, we have a proposition nation again. This is the same thing Walt Garlington was criticizing in his piece. Yarbrough is criticizing it here. Um, that uh, we we've created a, a a state worship centered on this phrase: uh, "All people or all men are created equal." Now it will be "All people are created equal," right? This is what we've done. It's it is a it is a civic religion. Um, and so, this is problematic. We and, and he's saying, you know, this idea that we're all just one great big mass, mass of people. That's not true. Everyone knows that. There are regional cultures. This is what Garlington... If you try to force those regional cultures on other people, you create conflict. It's problematic. But when you get into this idea that all men are created equal, and this is the proposition nation, and this is what, this is what we have, you not only erase... Real America, and what I mean by that is, I mean, look, when Jefferson wrote that, he understood that all all freeholders were equal under the law. It's not just about equality under the law; it's it is forcing equality of condition. That's not what we're talking. That's not what that me- phrase means. But you know, the fact is, when you have this proposition nation, you open the door to all of the central planning from the left, and you also open the door to something that I think is. Uh, highly problematic, and it's the piece on Thursday. Um, it was a piece, it's a piece by Phil Lee, and it's entitled Nat Turner's Massacre Apologists. You see, if you get into this proposition nation, then you have a situation where you can have the Martin Luther King Memorial Commission uh, and the Virginia of the Virginia Assembly announce that it will spend taxpayer money to erect a statue honoring Nat Turner. Now, if you don't understand Nat Turner, Nat Turner was the leader of a drunken slave rebellion, as Phil Lee points out here, I'm reading, from, this is true, that massacred 55 whites in the southeastern part of the state in 1831. Most of the victims were women and children, hacked to deck death with hatchets and axes. This is what we're going to celebrate, murder in a statue, because we have all men are created equal. We, we have to get to a situation where, I mean, the natural extension of that was all that these Southerners were just bad people and deserved to be hacked to death, you see, because uh, somebody led an uprising. This is where, why, I mean, uh, where you're celebrating a, an insurrection, a bloody insurrection against women and children. I mean, where, where are we in American society that this is okay it's not to say that not to apologize for slavery. It's not to say slavery was was good because no one's saying that. But on the other hand, just by well, look, we, we think slavery is bad. Uh, we, we know slavery is bad. Uh, we don't we, we're glad it's done, But should we celebrate homicide through a statue? Should we celebrate that? I mean, it's the same thing when you celebrate William T. Sherman. You're celebrating a war criminal, a man who purposely inflicted pain, on civilians. Purposely. So we're going to celebrate that? Really? We're going to do that? But this is where we are in American society, that this is okay. And of course, uh, Phil gets into what exactly happened here. There's no way there should be any statute to Nat Turner. People around the world recognize this as brutal. As an affront to law and order wasn't Christian. It wasn't anything but homicide. It's just like, I mean, should we celebrate John Brown and his homicidal homo, uh, uh, homicidal rampage through Kansas? Pottawatomie Creek. I mean, should we celebrate that? No. It was homicide. It was murder. So this is, this is the, uh, he, he points out, next they assaulted Nathaniel Francis's home, despite his reputation as a kindly white, uh, further evidence that several free blacks that chose to live on his property. Turner's gang killed every white in the household, including two boys. At the John Barrow farm, however, the patriarch fought back well enough to escape, to enable the females to escape. But by noon, Turner had assembled about 20 black men, but several were put under guard as reluctant participants. Next, he sent a detachment to the massacre of the Parker family. When the man failed to return, He took the rest of the game to Parker home where he found the detached group celebrating in the brandy cellar. Afterward, Turner raided a few more farms, only to find them deserted. One was owned by a family named Thomas, which included a 15-year-old boy named George. 32 years later, as a major general, George would win the nickname the Rock of Chickamauga for his role in saving the Union Army during that Civil War battle. By Monday afternoon, a number of white families had had banded together and organized resistance. They drove the blacks away at a skirmish near the Parker farm. Um so I mean this was a massacre. Not something to be celebrated. But yet it is, because of the fact that we have we've lost all semblance of I mean, I think sanity in America in that particular way. But regardless, this all gets back into what is Southern Conservatism. And um This idea that we don't have a proposition nation, that Southern conservatism is is not based on Hartz's idea of of a liberal, classically liberal society. It's something different. And I think all the pieces of this particular week show that. And so um, I hope you enjoyed them. And we've got some great stuff in store for next week, too. So until next time, good day.